Hello, dudes, duders, dudettes, and everything in between. That includes you. Yes, you. Welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am your host, Jesse Kester, and today we have a doozy of an episode. We got Hilliard Guess of Hill Dog Productions and the Screenwriters Rant Room podcast on as our guest. He is here to talk about the writer's room. The writer's room. Yes, it's one thing to sit in a coffee shop with your headphones on and your nose down and a laptop, but what what is it like to uh, write with a whole bunch of other people? What are the unique challenges to that environment? And what are his unique solutions? You're going to have to listen to find out the answers to those questions, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but don't worry, it won't be much because there is very little business to get to this week. You want to hear about my week? I went to get uh, butter because I wanted to make cookies, um, and I saw the Land of Lakes box has been redesigned so you can't make boobies out of the girl's knees anymore, so uh, hashtag boycott Land o Lakes coming in hot, uh, pure fire. I think we need to start the revolution. We need to take it back, so that's that's about as exciting as my week has been. Uh, other thing, other quick order of business is we have a brand new review for you. Woo who this review comes courtesy of yay sparkles. The title of the review is new favorite podcast. Well, I like the sound of this review five stars, new favorite podcast. Seems like we're going in a very positive direction. Let's, let's just read it. Let's hear how it goes. The Hollywood Fishbowl, got the name correct, thank you, is engaging and insightful. Yes, it is. And host Jesse has a way of inviting his guests to be honest and vulnerable. I do. Dead on, spot on. I love this review already. Every episode makes me laugh. Congratulations. I'm happy to hear that. And I love hearing more about the entertainment industry through Jesse and his guests. What a review. That seems to be all there is on that. Oh, wait, hold up. There seems to be another another sentence after that paragraph. Also, his little sister sounds pretty cool and smart. I can't take any umbrage with that. Uh, so what I'm going to do instead of complaining about what about that beautiful review is I'm going to end this intro and give you the one, the only, Hilliard guess. Drops. Morpheus is fighting Neo And you are coming in hot Let me ease off that throttle a little bit How have you been? Oh, well, I'm Jesse, this is the Hollywood Fishbowl Welcome to the program uh, Glad you're glad you're listening And today we are joined by What's up, y'all? It's your boy, Hilliard Guest you, you, you are my boy And I'm your boy, <laughs> Jesse Kester <laughs> I, I still haven't eased into that it's your boy or it's your girl thing. I don't know. When you're cool, you're cool, you know. Yeah, I'll get there. And Morpheus is done fighting Neo. Hi. How are you? I'm great. You're looking at me like you expect me to host this thing. <laughs> One of us gotta gotta lead the motherfucking back, okay. right? Can I curse on there? You can do whatever okay. you want. Here's you know I have a potty mouth, so I'm gonna I'm gonna frame you as I know you. Okay. I listen to your podcast and i had one thought throughout my entire experience was, it? was that that was how is this free so uh, much wisdom so much yeah. insight it the price point makes no sense <laughs> well let me tell you about that it's funny i lisa and i started doing the podcast over four years ago okay 
you know, we've dropped over 200 and something episodes. <clears throat> and when we started doing the show, we both were um, teaching like a bi-monthly at this uh, organization of black screenwriters. And we would teach at CBS and like um, Writers Guild, depending on what, what the event was going on. <clears throat> and I, I knew I needed a bigger audience. I just mm-hmm. could feel it because I was just getting so many questions and so much game that I was given. I was like, I feel like I need to give, I could give this to so many more people, you know? And the opportunity came. Um, my producing partner, Pamela, <clears throat> we were talking one day and she was like, well, why don't you just go ahead and do a show? And I had a couple people who were interested in me doing my own show based off of hearing me, you know, teach. But they wanted me to be a little more filtered and watch my language. And I was like, yeah. I'm not going to give you the real me if I'm watching what I do or say. So we, we put together our money and started our own show. And we, we, the reason why it doesn't cost anything is because we decided to give people game. You know, yeah. we, we just started the Patreon about a month ago. Well, the, the content you're giving away for free is tremendous. It just was like just sitting there, uh, it bated breath for each sentence that was coming. It was such a good experience to listen to <laughs> yeah, your work. Definitely. So uh, th- thank you for taking the time to speak with us. No problem. And if you don't deliver that same level of incredible wisdom, <laughs> then, <laughs> then I'm out. Um, we're trying a new bit. It's not, not a game. Don't worry. But what we do is uh, five and five to start off the show. So I'm going to ask you the questions that uh, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, especially when I'm doing homework on who I'm going to be interviewing. Uh, we're going to burn through the questions that I hear okay. more than any other. And oh we, got, we even have a little, Get ready, uh, y'all. <laughs> a little, a little timer. So you're going to have a minute per answer. And okay. then we're never going to have to come back to these questions no again. You good? You ready? This is, uh, let me turn on the volume so you can hear the beeping at least. <coughs> All right. And we got a little timer that goes beep, beep, beep. Question number one, where, where did you grow up and how does that affect who you are? Uh, I was born in Detroit. Uh, we moved to Brooklyn when I was two. And then I was raised in the Bay Area in uh, Palo Alto. Okay. Um, and I lived in the hood. So you remember the movie Dangerous Minds? Yeah. That yeah. was in my neighborhood. So you can just imagine the hood type of a place I grew up in. And being the young black gay dude in the neighborhood who was kind of, you know, bullied a little bit until I learned how to fight mm-hmm. kind of made me who I am. You know, so today the things that I write and produce, I'm interested in underdog stories. And there's a reason for that because I always consider myself the underdog. Okay. You know? You've got 18 seconds left on the clock. So, so those are the things that I'm fascinated by. You know, if you if people want to send me a script and I have time to read it and it has something that moves me in that type of way, I'm always eager to read it. You know what I mean? If it's... We'll get back to that. I got, I got That's what you questions. get for adding an extra 18 seconds. <laughs> I got follow-up questions. Uh, what's the must-engage media, the film, book, the TV show that uh, it, you shouldn't die without having seen and why? Hmm, that's a really, really hard question because it's so subjective. But I could tell you for you, for you, just your for me, it was West Side Story. Really, West Side Story is my favorite movie of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, Growing up in the hood, I was telling you, and being in gangs and stuff like that, it was the first time I ever saw gangs you know, on television in that way, besides the Warriors, where they were dancing and singing and all that stuff. And I was like, wow, I could do that. Okay. <laughs> you know, so um, that, that movie taught me how to dance. 
I would watch it every day. I learned how to stretch because I wanted to be able to kick high. I wanted to be able to do a pirouette. <clears throat> you know, so for me, that movie taught me everything. And about two years later, I ended up doing it at the Professional Children's Theater, you know, awesome. there. So, yeah. There's more coming. All right. You feeling okay? You yeah, ready yeah. for the next one? Okay. <clears throat> uh, purest Joy. Where does it come from for you? Hmm. I would say I have it in many ways, though. I have it when I write fade out in a script. I have it when my husband and I just take a drive, and I have the Starsky and Hutch car. You probably saw it outside. Was that yours? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was wondering. When we, we just go for a ride, cruising through, cruising on the beach, mm-hmm. you know, and I have that joy. Um, I have it when, when I see a movie and it moves me in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, I have it when I think about how great my parents are, you know, there's like lots of different ways when I'm playing with my dogs, you know, um, just being with my friends laughing, you know, Mm -hmm. happy tears is what I'm all about. Okay. You know, that's my favorite thing. All right. You got, you're good at this. You got 10 seconds left. You're going to forfeit. Maybe I might. Okay. (laughs) You're allowed to, here we go. Coming up next. I wonder if there's a way I can click through if if you're done early. Uh, Next question. What gets under your skin? Oof. A ton of things get under my skin. There's sound. I'm very, like, sound sensitive about things. Like, um, I hate the sound of a whining dog. Okay. Because a whining dog means they have anxiety. That means something's wrong. And so I'm always, if I hear anxiety in the dog, I'm like, how, are, how is the owner raising them? You know? So that always annoys me. When it comes to the industry... I hate stupid questions. And they always say, you know, no question is stupid. But I'd say no question was stupid 10 years ago. But now when you have the Google, you could just find out any information you want. You don't have to ask me, how do I get an agent? It's on fucking YouTube now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So take the time. Don't ask stupid questions. Okay. That, that tells me you, you're not doing your own research. You okay. want me to do it. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Or, man, you're burning through them. And here's, here's the, after that, the, here's the suicide question. What's your advice for beginners? <laughs> this is why we burn them down in the first okay. five minutes. Well, number one, do your research. And number two, I would say, do the thing that moves you. If you think you want to write and direct and produce and act and all that stuff, you want to do everything, which one is the one that... If you stop now, you would never want to, you, you, you need to do it every day for the rest of your life. That's the one you should focus on the most. I'm not telling you not to do the other ones because you have to. I'm a hyphenate. You know, I write, produce, I do a podcast, I direct, you know, I do everything. So be somebody who, 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 who takes the time to really learn to master something. You know, you'll never learn it all, but just try to be really, really good at it. Become compelling at it. You know, you can, if you could do that, then I have respect for you. Awesome. You know, eight seconds. I'm going to turn off the clock now. That's, enough. That's quite enough of that. All right. Now it's my turn. Go ahead. So, um, growing up a, a gay kid in, in gang, gangland, um, were you always this gleeful? Um, like you're always on the cusp of this mischievous smile. It's always right there on the edge. I'm a pretty happy Did person. Did you grow into that or what? I think so. I think so. It might have been. It might have been a, what's the word I want to use? You know, some people have that, 
like like some people who are overweight or or whatever have that thing where they make a lot of jokes to sh- to not show the the sad side of themselves yeah, as yeah, an example. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that that mischievous making a joke side has always come as my way of defeating something else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm aware of that. You know, and it's funny that you notice it too. Um, but it's it's gotten me through so many things, and it's and it's allowed me to. Like we talk about it on my show a lot, you probably have heard we talk about code switching. You know, mm-hmm. as a black man, when we're in in the vicinity of certain types of white folks, we have to code switch. You can't be the dude who's got your pants sagging down and you know what I mean, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. or speaking a certain way. So my smile and my energy and my positive behavior tells you I'm okay, tells you I'm not a threat. You know what I mean? You could leave $100 sitting there. I wouldn't touch it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm the dude. So I always have to show you that early. Yeah. So I think that that energy you're getting and that smile and that whatever is is probably a result of defeating something else. And now it's just ingrained in me to automatically go to that if that makes sense like the thing you were hiding behind has become the the not the right. default mode but the right mode the correct it's a default mode though i mean it, but it doesn't it's seem subconscious, like you're, though, yeah it doesn't you know? seem like it's a false or put no, upon it i'm 100 percent myself yeah i'm the same dude you meet every day i'm never giving you oh i'm in a mood today i'm not the dude i'm and all of my friends that I hang around with, like you just met Lisa and Chris, were mm-hmm. all pretty consistent on a yeah. regular. I like to surround myself like by people like that who know who they are, who don't have to deal with new moods and you know depression and all that stuff like that. And then, and if that's your thing, that's your thing. But I just tend to be um, drawn to people who are at a point in their lives when where they know who they are by now. You yeah. know, we're all in our mid 40s or whatever. We all kind of understand life and have been through a lot of things and relationships and, you know, different career choices, you know. So if you haven't figured out who you are by the time you're 40 something, maybe there's some reexamining. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. So for me, I've always been pretty mature for my age, if that makes sense. I think I came out when I was 17. <clears throat> my first boyfriend I dated was 14 years older than me when I was 20, 21 or something like that. And um, how'd that shake out? Was it to your, was it to both of your benefits? Like to have, uh, have a little bit of wisdom on his end or yeah, was that's it? where I was going. So I learned okay. a lot and I've, I've always been attracted to a certain type of a guy for myself. So, and they're always older than me. You know, that's just what I like. I always would rather, you can have Brad Pitt. I always wanted George Clooney. (laughs) You know what I mean? So just as an example. Mm -hmm. So for me, if I'm, if that's what I'm attracted to and that's what I ended up getting, um, I don't know if you saw the photo here of my husband on this thing right here. I did not. But if you know what I like, you go, okay, I see it right there. Right. And so where I'm going with that is hanging around people who are a little bit older than me who've had experiences who've Mm -hmm. been around the world who are super smart i'm attracted to smart people i love that like he's in mensa and you know et cetera et cetera so i love that type of a thing so where i'm going is you can't help but grow and learn from that and i'm somebody who didn't go to college you know i've been in a couple writing programs and shit like that but i didn't graduate from high school Mm -hmm. you know i got my gd so did you how how, when did you bail on high school how old were you probably It was a different time in the 80s, um, at least for me. Um, 
I went from hanging around my homeboys in the gang mm-hmm. to hanging around the punks and the mods and the skinheads. And so I tell people all the time that I went from hanging around, you know, Bloods and Crips and all that other stuff to hanging around, you know, the punks and listening to the Sex Pistols and the specials and all this other stuff. And we got in a hundred more fights than I ever did when I was in the gang. You know, when you're in the gang, is there any room for, for the homosexuality to come out or is it, it, it flatline dead? It depends on who you part are. Of you? Depends on how comfortable you are. Depends on, on really, it depends on your swag, if that makes any kind of sense. As someone I've, who has almost no swag whatsoever, uh, please I've keep I've always going. been a cat who had a little bit of style. You know, even when we were, because I was part of a breakdance crew, so I have to always have to be really clear. You know, okay. we weren't out there, you know, set tripping against other gangs, you know what I mean? I mean, that was certainly going on, and the gang became bad later on. Mm-hmm. But when I was, I'm talking about from like 82 to 84, it was early. You know, I was 12 yeah. to 14 years old. I was real, I was young. We were a crew who breakdanced against other gang members. You know what I mean? It was a different time. 84. So West Side Story spoke to you not just on a metaphorical level. Saying. It was like a literal. So I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, like, wow, yeah. like that's me. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so, and so, um, it was it was a different time, and it just for me. I also learned. I started doing martial arts, so mm-hmm. it taught me how to fight back. So when people would bully me or say I was soft or oh, you know, he a little faggot or whatever it was, I would always come back with, well, "We can go outside." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I had to learn how to do that. And when I finally took down somebody in front of everybody, they were like, oh, don't fuck with him. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm a big component of parents teaching their kids how to fight or put, putting them in martial arts or MMA, something, because kids are the worst. The worst. You can sit there and go, you can tell your teacher, you can tell the principal what happens when they leave school. Oh, no, they're Machiavellian. <laughs> you know I mean? they're, they're insane right. kids. Right. So. So I'm, I'm prefacing all that because mm-hmm. th- that helped me on one side. And the other side that helped me was um, when I was 12, I started acting. So about by the time I was 14 or 15, I started getting some commercials. So I became the popular kid in the neighborhood who was doing commercials. Yeah, and shit, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I got a pass. You know, I was like, oh, that's Hollywood. Oh, that nigga, whatever. You know what I mean? So people immediately give you that, oh, he's cool. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's Ugh. special because he's on TV. Yep, you know yep. what I mean? And then growing up in the whole mod punk rock scene, even though I'm living in the hood, riding on a 60s scooter, wearing a 60s suit in the hood, mm-hmm. I was that oddball dude who was doing TV. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. fucking Pee Wee Herman in the fucking neighborhood. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. So there was that... That gave me a hall pass. I can't speak for any other because there were other gay dudes in the neighborhood who I knew, yeah. but they were being punked or they were teased or whatever you know whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, you yeah. know, so hope that made some sense. It did. It absolutely <laughs> did. And don't worry, I'm not trying to. Um, it, you're not speaking for the entire gay community. And I don't want to. That's why I just yeah, had yeah, to preface yeah, that. Yeah, that's I'm not only the, using my own experience. You know? Yeah, that's all we can speak right. on with any authority in this room right now. Um, here's a question that came up I was thinking I was listening to your your programs Mm -hmm. looking over your materials what do you suck at it was kind of getting under my skin Mm -hmm. like I can't I can't put a pin in what what you're bad at oh my god um you just keep that shit secret from people what am I bad at I'm sure I'm bad at a few things but I'm I hate people like you so much (laughs) 
Here's my let me. All right, I'm gonna give you some game. Okay, I'm gonna okay. give you some game. Y'all listen up, motherfuckers out there. So trip this. So I was in the room a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We all have our vices, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now my producing partner Pamela hates when I talk about this, but I'm somebody. I, I my hope is that somebody out there listening will get some game from this. So this is why I'm telling this story. Okay. <clears throat> now I grew from the story, but I just will have to tell it the way it was. I'm sitting in the room and I'm in this writer's room with all the, some of the smartest people I ever met in my life. And I'm sitting there sometimes going, wow, how in the fuck did I get here? Mm-hmm. Right? All these super smart Princeton, Harvard, UCLA, all these, right? USC. And I'm like, and me, yeah. no high school, no whatever. You know, I was out hanging out, right? And I was sitting there and they were philosophizing about philosophy and whatever. And I was like, fuck. Like, I, I, I had. I call it, um, what's the word, um, imposter syndrome. Yep, yep, yep. Right? You might have heard me talk about this. And I was sitting there listening, and they were just going in. And for like five minutes, I was just like becoming smaller and smaller yeah, in the room. Yeah, you are the phoniest of baloney in this room. I was like, I shouldn't even be here. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Right? No matter how good of a writer I think I am or that the, the showrunners think I am or whatever, for that mm-hmm. moment, I didn't deserve to be there in my head. And I put my head down for a second and I look over and I see the comic book that my show's based off of. And it's open up to a page where one of the characters is this guy named this guy named Maud Steven, who was a mod who's gay in San Francisco in the eighties. Duh. That yeah, was me. Yeah. So you, you know a little and bit I about went, the topic. And I look around at the room and everybody's in a room at the time, but we're just talking, you know, sometimes it's just talk. Yeah. Right? We're not yeah. talking about the show. And I look around the room. And I look and I go, oh, there's nobody in the room except for me and the showrunner and the other guy who were in this scene at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody knows this like I do. And suddenly you are the least phony of believing. That's my superpower. Yeah. I went, oh, it didn't matter that I went to college or grabbed this yep, MFA yep, yep. and whatever the fuck. None of them were there. You know what I mean? So I had to realize really, really quickly, and I don't know if this is answering your question, but is help I'm just trying to give people game that sometimes that's my weakness. My weakness is thinking I'm an imposter in a situation yeah. where like my husband is is a white man, you know, who's is successful. He in, in film or? No, he's a okay. he's a realtor and he's very involved with um with politics and stuff like that. Like um the city councilman Mitch O'Farrell married us. The oh. mayor came to our wedding, literally. So that's the type of people that are in our circle. Yeah. So sometime I'm around all these politicians and I feel like an imposter oh, yeah. sitting in there with oh, the, yeah. and I don't like politics at all. Yeah. You know, he's all into it, you know. But but I have to realize that I have to code switch at times to enjoy things or pretend like I'm having a good time or to, it just doesn't interest me. Do you ever trick yourself into actually enjoying it? Like if you do the code switch and then sometimes you- it's fascinating to be sitting there at the table and the mayor's there or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, that's nice, you know, to have him come to my wedding and you know what I mean? Yeah. Et cetera. Those things are nice, but, but, and he gave us a beautiful plaque, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. Those things are nice, but, but, it, I could live with or without it. You know, I'd be more interested if that was Spielberg or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Somebody like that would move me more. You so, know? where do you feel most at home then? Is it the writer's room? Is it the director's chair? Is it on the podcast? Where Where do you finally like decompress? I think um, 
all those places. Okay. If that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Because there's moments where, like, I don't drink, smoke, or do drugs. Just never have. Have you ever? No. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a drink once. Okay. And I was about 14 years old. We we're at my friend Troy's house. There were, there were six of us. We were all black guys. No, there was one Filipino. Um, so there were seven of us. And we all were rude boys into the whole mod skinhead scene. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he used to have these parties. He had his mo- his mom was, um, I'm not, everybody knows this, so I'm not making this public. She was kind of a crack addict. Mm-hmm. So if they gave her money, she would allow them to get beer and, you know, have a party at her house. So we'd be in the hood mm-hmm. <laughs> with fucking all the mods and everybody had 15, 20 scooters outside, music bumping in the hood. Yeah. And that was one day when everybody was drinking and they were like, hey, you know, you should get drunk. I'm like, I'm not putting that nasty shit in my mouth. And they were like, oh, let's just see what happens if you get drunk. So I had this skinhead girlfriend at, at this one point. A skinhead. Traditional skinhead girlfriend. Okay. Not, not, not a Nazi. Nazi skinhead. Okay. Okay. But we had a bunch of Nazi skinhead friends. It's a okay. whole nother show. It's a small scene. We all listen to the same music. Now, this was your girlfriend at the time? This was a girlfriend of mine. Were you I still was dating girls. I dated girls until was I was like I dated girls until I was twenty. Okay. Twenty twenty one. Until I met that boyfriend in San Francisco. Okay. And um I meant to remember that I skipped over a bunch of stuff, but I used to dance, I used to be in a bunch of videos, I toured with rappers, I've done all that. So you can't Who are some good names? Any anyone you want to I've danced for like I've been in many videos like Hammer and um, 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 there was this girl named Argina who was a big singer back in the day. Diamond D. There was all these rappers and shit. I was Bay just Area going through, through, through uh, K Town and somebody was bumping uh, the, the Hammer. It made me very happy. <laughs> I love it, man. It was it was. I came in when he was in his prime too. It was yeah. Shit. Anyway, and so I've done all these experiences, so that allowed me to meet more girls and to sleep with more girls than I ever did, guys, even still to this day. And so um, I forgot what the question was. Where were we going? You just threw me off for some Skin- second. Skinheads. Uh, oh, fake girls. So, so, so everybody was testing me to have a drink. Yes. So I was like, fine. So I had a, I think it was just a Budweiser, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so sensitive even today. If I take a Benadryl, I have to take like a tiny quarter of yeah, it, yeah. or I am done for the next three days. Yeah. So you can imagine if I put something in my body, I'm just sensitive. Yep. Right? So I had a beer. I'm like, I don't feel anything. Here, here's another one. I don't feel anything. I had two. They give me another one. I don't remember anything else. All I know is I woke up. It was, sun was starting to come up. I was in Troy's mom's bedroom, in her bed, and I turn over, and my girlfriend is next to me, my mm-hmm. skinhead girlfriend, next to me, and I sit up, and my head is thumping. And I look on the floor, and there's six Nazi skinheads on the floor asleep. And I'm like, how in the fuck did I get here? And I had a scooter, and I lived about five blocks away. So I went, I'm going to leave my scooter here, and I'm going to walk home. And I got up, I tiptoed over everybody, and I walked home, and my head was just going, I was like, I will never drink or touch anything in my entire life. I was 14, maybe 15 years old, ever. 
So, and I had never done anything up to that point. So still to this day, and I used to sit on my scooter because we all would go to this place called the Varsity. It was like the hip place for all of us to hang out. And we would sit on our scooters in our little 60s suits and we'd have cigarettes in our mouths. And I just would hold one. It wouldn't be lit. But it was the cool thing to do. And so, so that shows you a little bit about a little bit about who I am and what I've I experienced. I don't understand the math at all on neo Nazis hanging out with uh, a gay black man. That it was it, it, well, I wasn't. What openly am I missing gay, here? Okay, clearly. Okay, so we got. It half, was clear that I was gay, but I wasn't openly gay. How did they? Know? How did they party with that? How did they rationalize it? So it and, all happened. We used to have friction with these guys. It used to be. So we would be at the varsity and be me and my rude boyfriends all hanging out. And there would be these, it was like 10 of them at the time. It was like 10 of these Nazis. They were much older than all of us. And they'd been in and out of jail. Like they were those type of guys. They were sleeping on the streets. They were like real, real ragged, you know, type of dude. But they were hardcore. And one of them was this guy. His name was Mike Ironcross because he had an Iron Cross on his forehead tattooed. And he was a leader of them. Tough motherfucker. And we'd be going to see Fishbone and the Untouchables and fucking Bad Brains and all these bands. And they'd be in the middle of the mosh pit just knocking people over because they were bigger than everybody. Yeah. And something happened where um, one day um, Mike's, Mike's girlfriend had a baby. And me and my homeboys decided, you know what? We don't really get along with them, but it's not fair to the baby. We knew they didn't have money. We knew they needed diapers. So we all put in, here's a five, here's $3, here's whatever. We went and bought them a bunch of shit and delivered it to him. And I almost get teary-eyed thinking about it. He bawled his butt off. He was like, I can't believe that black people are doing this for me. Like my own friends haven't even done this for me. And from that day on, we all bonded. And he made all his boys come in. We all bonded together. He's like, if you guys ever need any backup, we got you. That's so from awesome. that day on, we'd be in the mosh pit and they'd see us and they'd beeline over us. You guys all right? We'd be like, yeah. And we're like, somebody hits you, we got you. And it became this thing. And eventually, those guys ended up joining Sharp, which is Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice because of us. Mm-hmm. You see? So there's, it's a whole long story. So, but it... It, it didn't necessarily make them lose their full-on beliefs and what they believe, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it mellowed them to go, I'm okay with you. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And I'm not asking them to date a black girl. I'm just saying just be open-minded to have a conversation, yep. and you'll realize we're not as bad as you think. You know what I mean? So that's how they became part of our clique for years. For like three or four years we, run, we were roaming around the streets. You know? When do you figure out that you're useful as a writer? Well, back in the 80s, everybody was trying to rhyme. Everybody was, you know, oh, I'm rapping, I'm whatever. Mm -hmm. And some reason, I would always write these kind of like spoken word stories, which I didn't even know they were spoken word, but they were always poems with metaphors and all these crazy shit, but they always told a story. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize it, but I always wrote them out of some sort of sadness or depression or whatever it was I was having at the time. And years later, when I moved to L.A. to become an actor and really get serious about it, um, I was working on this movie um, with this big star. And we were sitting in a trailer talking, and she turned to me one day, and she's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, about what? She's like, you can't just act. And I was like, oh, well, one day I'll figure I'll hire somebody to write this script. And she's like, what's it about? 
It's about the true story and how skinheads became skinheads, not the Nazi skinheads, the real skinheads, right? Mm-hmm. And so I told her the story, and at the end, it's kind of a tragedy, and I was in tears. And I look at her, and she's a huge star, and she was in tears. And I was like, oh, wow. And she says, you have to tell that story. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. One day I'll hire somebody to do it. She's like, you have to write the story. So we were in Utah. I flew back home. I was at the coffee shop, which is what I did back in the day before I ever got my office or anything. And I was talking to another writer friend of mine, and I told him what happened. And he says, oh, well, here's final draft. And I was like, what's that? He's like, it's the thing to write scripts. And I was like, okay. So I took it home, that big-ass old Macintosh thing that I had, the big dinosaur. This is like 2000, maybe 2001. And um, I put it in, and I saw the thing, and I just went, fade in. London, 1964. And I went, I never want to act again. Really? Like that. It was that that fast? Just like, because what happened was, and I talk about this a lot, you know the feeling you get when you finish a script, when you just edit your movie, when you... When you just make love to your girl, whatever the fuck the thing is for you, right? It's something like an I am God feeling almost. Eh, it's I'm, a just bit a, a, I'm a bit arrogant, maybe. Maybe, but it's just a feeling of, here's how I felt. I remember when, when I stopped writing is when I was acting the most, mm-hmm. right? I was fresh off of a series called City of Angels, right? And I was working with Blair Underwood and Vivica Fox and all these, Hill Harper, all these cats. And... Every day I would show up and I'd be like, man, dude, I'm fucking doing it. I got my trailer or whatever. I'm making good money, like all this stuff. And when I wrote Fade In, I felt like I was on the set. I felt like I was just hanging out with Blair Underwood. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was sitting in my trailer. You know what I mean? Every time I kept writing more, it never went away. All the way. It took me a year to write that script. Right? Now I could do it in like three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right? Took me a year to write that script, and and I still was recurring on a, on a show. And I finished that script. I sent it off to Sundance, and three months later, it was a quarterfinals. A few months later, it was a semifinals. A few months later, it get, made the final cut to the top 20, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, all those years of being an actor since I was 12 years old made me a better writer, and I didn't even realize it. When you're writing, are you like transcribing the story that's already written in your brain? Are you discovering it on the computer? Are you forcing yourself to make it up as you go? Like, what does it feel like for you to be writing? Well, when I first started, I I still wrote the entire story out. For some reason, I knew to do that. I can't say if I remember. It's been over 20 years now. Yeah, almost 20 years now. I can't we, can, remember. we can focus on evolved technique if that's where you're more at now. Yeah, well, it, I, I wrote the story out probably in like a three or four page, mm-hmm. you know, story arc, if you will. Like, here's what it begins, whatever. And then I think I just wrote the script it written initially. I mean, I've been reading scripts since I was 12, so I had an idea of flow and character and doing theater for so many years. So I had a really good sense of, I had a good ear for dialogue and yeah. all that what I had to learn was craft. I, had to, I still hadn't fully learned how to make it look pretty on the page. I hadn't learned, mm-hmm. you know, how to get in and get out, you know, early. I hadn't learned all those tricks. So I had a 119-page script. Now it would be like 104 now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, not that I'm counting, but I am just know how to be leaner, yeah. you know? 
And so, so it took me years to figure that out and how to get better at that, you know. And what happened was, um, I know, forgive me, this is a very long story, but hopefully somebody's getting some game from it. Um, what happened was, when I made it to the finals of Sundance, your name gets on a list. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all of Hollywood wanted to read this script. Script about fucking skinheads in fucking England in the 60s, right? And what was interesting about it was the way the story took place, it took place in a world where it was almost like Forrest Gump. So everything that happened to this character is how it all happened, as if he was Forrest Gump. You know, remember Forrest would be running, somebody would hand yeah. him a shirt, he'd do this, and the circle would come yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. my character, you see how he fully became a skinhead. Being in England, he was always at the right place at the right time. You know, things would happen to him, and I was using historic events and all this Just stuff like that. Just to sure. delineate the language, uh, when you say skinhead, do you mean neo-Nazi? Do you mean a punk? No, I mean, uh, I mean like, what, traditional skinhead, what does reggae that mean? skinhead. A skin who loves reggae music. That's what they were first. Okay. Now, you're familiar with the mods, right? The mods were, were first. Mm-hmm. So the mods were into, you know, 60s soul, R&B, black music is what they mostly liked. And the skinheads are a result of that. Mm-hmm. They were kind of a spinoff. They were almost the more aggressive ones. And so the black guys from Jamaica who grew up in England brought their music over to England, which was reggae and, and calypso and ska. And a lot of the white guys started listening to that. And the first groups who took on to that were the skinheads. And so the music first became called skinhead reggae. That was what it was really, really known during the, the mid and early 60s and stuff. And eventually later on, they end up finding their own music and they, can't, they called it Oi. You know, mm-hmm. that's where Oi came from. They were like, we need our own music. We're listening to all this black music. You know, so that's where that spinoff okay. came from. Okay. <clears throat> but before it ever became racist or Nazi or anything, it was all about black. Matter of fact, the whole style, the braces and the boots, that, the black guys were wearing, that, that was their style. Yeah. They took yeah. the whole style. Well, I don't know. There, there might be a bit of a track record of, of, of white people taking the fashion Again. from <laughs> the music. That might not have been exactly. the first or the last no. time that that happened no. in fashion or exactly. in entertainment or in music. Or <laughs> exactly. So, so, yeah. So that whole story was centered around how it all originally happened. Mm-hmm. And he has, in, in the story, my lead character has a rival who was a rocker. You know, the mods and rockers didn't like each other, right? But the rocker became a skinhead, too, because the skinhead spread throughout England on the football terraces, right, through my guy. He, he, was at a, he, was at a, he was at a football game with his gang, and they get into a fight with a bunch of rockers, and people start seeing their style and how they look, and it starts spreading from Chelsea, and it starts working its way across mm-hmm. the southeast part and starts going to Birmingham, you know, to, to Manchester, and next thing you know, it's all over England based off of my guy, you know, and his, and his gang. And so... The, the, his rival, who's this rocker guy, um, ends up becoming a full-on skinhead too, but he takes it the racist way. Okay. So when they start hitting the football terraces and, um, 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 on the football terraces, they start the racist side. Yep. That's the side, kind of like hip-hop, you got the gangster rap. And then you have the popular rap. Yep, yep, well, the yep. gangster rap back in the 90s is what became really popular. Yeah. You know, that's all you heard about. You didn't realize that there were the cool modis and the, you know what I mean, the other guys out there. You only heard, you know, the NWAs and Ice-T yeah. and all that other stuff. So it's the same thing. You don't realize that the regular skinheads were these guys who like reggae and ska and calypso and R&B. 
But these other guys came on, and that's all you saw in the papers. Were these Nazi guys who were all about whatever? So they, they sell they, more copies. So of they the, got the, the look. afternoon edition, right? And there was a there was a book that came out from way back then called "The Spirit of '69," which is when the first people ever first heard the word skinhead be called that, even mm-hmm. though they existed way back in the early mid '60s too. And so um, there's a there's a phrase from one of the original guys. He says, "If you're a skinhead and you and you're a Nazi, you can't be you can't be racist." Because everything about us is based on black people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so it's a truth. And kinda, if you go back and do your research, you see it all. So Kind of like how uh, the, those, those red pills. Right. They co-opted it from the wrong, <laughs> right. the wrong creative minds. Their, right. their terminology is just completely the opposite of what they think they're talking. Right. It, um, the right, writing. Writing. Okay, okay. Sorry, not, I, not you. No, no it's I, fine. It's fine. I would love to do this for seven hours straight. It's all good. Um, <clears throat> so you get it. You get, you get your your fade up. Um, the, uh, what I wanted to come to talk to you about was was col- creative collaboration in the writers' room, really, because okay. it seems to be uh, a skill you have. Would you Would you disagree yeah, it, with that? You can take umbrage if you if you want. No, um, I think it comes from me. From so the writer strike happened in two thousand eight, right? Mm-hmm. Seven eight. Something like that. Um, so I was out picketing with some of my friends at Paramount, and I had written this pilot <clears throat> that had this little moment, excuse me, where there were two people trapped in a subway train. So my friend who's a writer who's written a lot of things says, Hell, you got a read your script. I love it. I says, you know, maybe you should take that little scene, that little sequence, and make that into a short or make that a play or something because it's just two people talking heads, but it's fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. I went, eh, eh, I'm a writer. You know, you start to put on your hat. You label yourself. The fucking strike kept going, kept going, kept going. I was like, shit, I got to do something. I, and I went, I had an epiphany. I need to be my own boss. Mm-hmm. I went, I know a lot of people in LA. So I ran into a DP friend of mine. We started talking. I ran into a, my friend um, who's a producer. And I went, I would love to do this thing. So I sent it to him. And next thing you know, a week later, the location manager's um, um, expo was out. So we were out looking for subway trains because it all takes place on a subway train. So next thing you know, we worked that out. And I'm a really, what makes me a really good producer is I'm really good at putting people and pieces together. So, and, and negotiating numbers. I literally got a subway train for $1,000 for an entire weekend. That's awesome. Is this troublesome? Or yeah, is this, troublesome. Okay, okay. And so, so we ended up making this movie. Six months later, it was critically acclaimed. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And because I was teaching with Lisa, I started teaching from this place where I would use as an example of how I put together a team, right? Mm-hmm. Of, I'd use it as an example of how I made something out of nothing, you know? And, and I started realizing I have natural man- managerial things in my head. Yep. What I didn't tell you was <clears throat> when I was doing that movie with that big um, actress and we were sitting in her trailer um, talking, it was a movie that a friend of mine was the line producer on. And I was his assistant mm-hmm. on that. And that all happened as an accident. I went with him to lunch and the whole time driving to lunch, he was on the phone with this big actress. And I said, give me the phone. He was like, no way. This is 
an Oscar winning actress. I'm not giving you the fucking phone. I snatched the phone. I was like, what do you need? Because he kept almost getting into an accident trying to talk to her and write down shit while we're driving. So mm-hmm. I took the phone and I started going, uh-huh, got it. Whatever, all right, what time? Whatever. And he looked at me. So we went to go eat. We sit down and he goes, you want to go with me to Utah for a month? And I was like, hell yeah. I was like, what are we going to do? He's like, oh, well, you'll be my assistant. You're actually really good at it. Like this. So what I didn't know was being there for a month, watching him as one of the top line producers in town, set up all the different bases and organize the rooms and, you know, how he looks at logistics, you mm-hmm. know, from this distance to distance, you have to have this truck here so that it makes sense for this. You got to yeah. have this room connected to that so that whatever. I didn't realize that, yeah, but yeah, it yeah. taught me now. So when I produced my thing, I was like, oh, I already got this. Yep, yep, yep. You feel me? Yep. So I know yep. I'm giving you the long-winded version of this, but... um um, so my managerial things helped me to be easy in a room, you know, and having to be an actor and using and, and being used to working with people and doing theater and working as a collaboration has made it easy. I'm really good at telling people what to do and making them feel good about it. So what happens you get in, in the room? What do you what, what is a writer's room like? Well, it's interesting. Every room give us is the different. the basics of it and then we'll talk about your okay. experiences. Every room is different. Um, um some rooms don't have a room. Some shows don't have a room at all. You know, you guys go off and write the, <clears throat> the outlines and, you know, you come together once a week or twice a week, you know, to work out the stories and you go off and write and you come back and, you know, you turn in scripts and pages and whatever. Some rooms are like ours. We're in there, you know, from 10 to 6 every day. Luckily, I have a great showrunners who are really, really, they like they want to go home and see their families. So mm-hmm. they're like it's six o'clock. Yep. Bye. <laughs> we might be in the middle of something. They're like, nope. Let's we'll finish this tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and that just depends. Some showrunners are like, we're here until fucking three o'clock in the morning. Yep. You know. Yep. Um, but the writers' room is an interesting place. You know, it's been it's been a, a great experience for me. Um, I've done a lot of smaller scale shows that I've mm-hmm. produced. Um, where sometimes you have to skip certain things, like you can't afford to have this department or that department, so you have to. So I might have to do three different roles. Yeah, yeah. right. So it's been interesting seeing how things are done <clears throat> with a bigger budget, with with more people, with more departments. Um, it allows you to 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 relax in it because you know that those other things are being taken care of. Yeah. I'm used to being the one who's in all the meetings yep, and yep, everything. Yep. And when I'm not, it's, it's a little startling to me at first. Took me about three weeks ago. Okay. You don't need to be in everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could just chill. They got it. You know yep, what I mean? Yep. Yep. Um, um, what, what specifically do you want to know about the room? Maybe, maybe well, I'm not answering I think, the question. No, no, no. I, th- I think something that happens a lot is, well, there's, there's an adrenaline, uh, some something there's some release of chemicals in your brain when you have a good idea and you know it's a good idea mm-hmm. that that you get a, a buzz from it um and i think a lot of people in the early days if they haven't been in a room mm-hmm. they want to protect that like they think that buzz oh. is the truth yeah you'll be knocked down really fast in the room too and and not like not in a way that i mean i've i've watched like every room, you put together your room based on what you need for your show. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like building your baseball team, your football team. It's very sports related, you know, and you hear that all the time. But when you finally sit in a room, you go, oh, they're the guy who's at fourth. You know, your you're bases are loaded. He's the joke guy. You need him to come in and go, bam. I think we lost our camera again. What are we complaining about now, world? We're going to keep going <laughs> with okay. audio. I don't mind. Um, <clears throat> sometimes you need that guy, that girl to come in and just kill it. And so you start to see around the room as you sit there and you get to know these writers where people's strengths and sometimes where the weaknesses are, mm-hmm. you know. And you, you, you clearly see, ah, they hired this particular EP because she or he is really good at such and such. Ah, they're structure person. Ah, that person's character. Ah, that person's whatever. And sometimes we all have a little bit of all that. Yeah. <clears throat> but you see the superpower. When you see somebody with a superpower ability, mm-hmm. like people talk about like Sean Ryan and Glenn Mazzara as an example. <clears throat> Clearly Ryan Murphy, he has these superpower people who could just pow, come up with an idea and see the entire show, yeah. you know, from a word. You yeah. know what I mean? And that is an ability that takes years to grow and figure out. But that's after doing hundreds and hundreds of hours of network television or movies or whatever it is that they're good at. <clears throat> how can you not have developed that? You know yeah. what I mean? Um, um, like I'm really good. I study human behavior. I think it comes from having been an actor and, 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 and now being a writer for the last 17, 18 years. It's been like we, me, me and my husband, this is just a funny little thing. We'll watch... We'll watch, like we were watching Ninja Warrior last night. Mm-hmm. And I'm three steps ahead of when they're going to fall. And my husband can't see it. He's like, how did you see it? I was like, it was body language. It was in their eyes. He's like, what did you see? And I let, let's rewind it back. I go, see, right there, there was just a little glint of them hesitating. Before he jumped, I saw it. Mm-hmm. I was like, there it is. He's not going to, he or she is not going to reach, you know, the, whatever you call it. You know what I mean? Or they're going to fall before they get to this third one, they're going to fall. No, they're not. They're perfect. Like, watch. Second one, bloop. <laughs> you know yep, what I mean? Yep, yep. I was like, I can see their body language. Like, I could just tell, you know, and how they feel. And so where I'm going with that, it's the same thing with these Ryan Murphys and these Glimmer's Eras and these Kurt Sutters and the, these examples are people. And like on my show, my showrunner, Mick Bedcourt, I mean, he's just every idea is just like, you would have never come up with the idea ever in your third mind. You know what I mean? But when you're around that, you can't help but take in how much better you're going to be when you're done yeah. in 20 weeks. Yeah. yeah <clears throat> you know, yeah. listening to these masters go in about, you know, the show and characters and plot or whatever it is, you hear them go and you're just like, or you watch how they work the board and how they created from act one to eight to act six. It's like, I would have never have come up with that. And I'm pretty good at it, <laughs> you know, but damn, you know, the way, oh, why, oh shit, see, next time I do my pilot, it's going to be off the chain. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You mm-hmm. start to see that. And so for me, being in the room has been one of the best experiences ever in my life because the growth that I'm going to have when I'm done is I already think of myself as being pretty dangerous. And when I say I'm, but I mean, just me like I'm dangerous in the fact that I know so much because I'm just an avid person. You hear my show. I mean, the two of the Lisa and Chris are like total cinephiles. I'm somebody who's all about what's on the page. 
If something yeah. comes out, I got to read it. If somebody tells me it's something good, I got to I got to I got to read it. I like to see it on the page, you know. And that's why I've read thousands of scripts, not just, you know, oh, I read that one or that one, thousands. And that's why it's locked in my head. So when I hear a story or see characters or whatever, I can recollect back to something I read 10 years ago and remember a moment and be like, ooh, I got to add that mm-hmm. in my script just to get somebody to get that, mm, you know, that little yep, moment yep, of yep, tears. Yep, yep. The way that they wrote that little moment in Kramer versus Kramer where he does that, ah, oh, or whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? And so the only way to get that is to put in those hours to me. You know, when I used to be a reader for, you know, different producers and stuff. So you can't help but get that muscle from the over and over, the constant reading, the constant. The problem with that, though, is you start to see you get bad habits because it's just my opinion. The more you read, the more you don't want to read sometimes. Because you, you, on the weekend, you have a stack to read. Well, of course, you're going to want to read the lightest one first, yeah. right? Or the one that has the coolest title or the one that has the genre that you really love the most. That's the one you're going to want to read. As you start going down the line and you get to, you know, the sixth script you got to read and cover by yeah. the weekend, you're just like done. Yeah. So yeah. if there's pet peeves you have about, you know, the way things look on the page or too much you know, exposition or too much, yep, whatever yep, yep. your pet peeve is, you're going to dock it yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so to me, in my opinion, the more you read those types of scripts specifically for coverage, the more you become somebody who, it can become a bad habit in my opinion. Yeah. Because it yeah. did for me. I had to readjust myself out of that, you know, to not look at scripts a certain way. Yeah. I had to yeah, look yeah. at it for, did it move me now? You know what I mean? So... But the room is an amazing place. Um, um, go ahead. Here's a quick question. I kind of think of, uh, maybe I'm wrong in thinking this way, but I kind of think of everything in the universe as a learnable job. Like any of us could be heart surgeons if we did our time. Mm-hmm. If, you know, what's, when you get into the room, what's, what's the thing that anybody could be doing in the room that would improve, that, that, that would make them a valuable asset to, to a room? Oh, well, it depends on the show. <clears throat> like, um, for example, and you hear this all the time, if you used to be a lawyer but you never wrote and you're writing on a law show, mm-hmm. that would be an asset because you would have stories to tell. That's where most writers go wrong is you go into your showrunner's meeting um, with your showrunner to be staffed on the show and you talk about your script or things about that. They've already read it. You don't have to talk about your script anymore. Mm -hmm. So what you need to talk about is the script you read from them and how it relates to you. So for example, you might say like they might, they might straight up ask you. So did you read the script? Did you, did you watch the pilot? You'd be like, Oh man, I loved it. The character of Steve, that dude, I totally relate to. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. When I was 14, we used to do some good, tell them a story. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. they hear more stories in you. Oh, okay. You yep, feel yep, me? Yep, yep, yep. So that's what I did my whole time. I told them like six or seven different stories in my hour of our conversation. You know? So it's kind of like you're reapplying for the job with every sentence. To Not an really, extent. but kind of in a way. You, you just keep, you keep reapplying for the... To an extent, but you have to remember the room <clears throat> is set up in a way where your job is to 
make the job of your showrunner easier. Mm-hmm. That's your job. The only way to do that is to pitch great ideas and to write great stories, right? Um, to be on time, to be the first one in the room, all that bullshit. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, 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 so most writers go wrong because they they don't know how to pitch themselves. Instead of, I always tell everybody, <clears throat> you have to almost practice how to pitch yourself. You know, and it always starts back with your childhood. You see, I immediately went back to when I was 14. Mm -hmm. Because if I go back to when I was a certain age, I'm telling you, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. I'm almost 48 years old. (laughs) I have plenty of stories, you know. So I'm telling you, if I can go back then and pull something out of my ass from right then, all those other years, I probably can grab something too. So so that's why I always tell people, go back to your childhood. A lot of people don't want to be vulnerable to that. So much change. I mean, so much becomes imprinted on you on who you are and what you believe in when you're in that age. So if you can get them started there, right. you're, you're, you're golden. Right. I, and the room is all about every showrunner is waiting for you to be vulnerable. <clears throat> they don't want you to be like, well, I'm not going to tell this one story because it's too private to my life. Yeah, yeah. They want you to go, here's what happened. I was molested when I was six. I'm just, exi- yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to be that vulnerable to tell somebody your story. Because if you don't, it's such a place where everybody is being open about what happened to them that translates to the story. And you'll be surprised. You think you're just telling a story about something mm-hmm. and somebody will go, oh, remember Hilliard told that story about three weeks ago about whatever? What if the character of whatever did such and such and such? And it might just be a piece of yeah, what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. That's why they want you to tell those stories. So that you could pull from it and use it where you need um, um, and that's why you hear a lot of showrunners or whatever talk about how their their wives or their husbands or whatever it is are always like, oh my God, every time I turn on TV, there's something in our lives on the screen because they were vulnerable to what really happened. Yep, yep, you know yep. what I mean? Um, the one thing I have to encourage people, and I don't know if, how many episodes you listen to my show, if you want to write television, this mm-hmm. is something they don't teach you. You have to work on your speed. Oh, yep, yep, yep. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, especially a lot of my my film writer friends, they want to write television, but they don't, they think they could come into a room because they're a really good writer and have not practiced writing a script in seven days, you know, or writing your outline in two or three days or yeah. whatever your show is asking for, you know, or writing your story area, which is your, um, especially here's the story of the episode, you know, which needs to be written sometimes. They're like, we need this tomorrow you know, depending on the show. <clears throat> and I can't encourage writers who want to write in television be in writer's rooms more. You need to be practicing now as if you have deadline. As if, you know, how can I... I wrote this outline. I have a script that I need to start writing. Can I write this in a week? You know what I mean? You need to be trying to do that now. Yep. You know, because you're going to get your script when you get on a show um, and you're going to be tested by that. And if you can't do it, you may be the first one to be gone. That's yeah. That's a big question on my mind. Is what what does suicide look like in a writer's room? How what's the best way to to get in your own way? How do you destroy your own? Um, well, there's a couple of different ways. You know, sexual harassment is one way. Okay. <clears throat> Matter of fact, our first day we did it. Our showrunner came in, but all three of them they were like, um, "We won't be tolerating this. We won't be tolerating that." And they laid the law. 
Okay. You know, if you're being mean or rude or dogging people on their pitches, you're gone. You know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, speak on it. You know what I mean? Because that's, we shouldn't be tolerating that bullshit anymore. You know, it's, that's that very old school way of <clears throat> thinking that those, you know, older writers, you know, from that old boys club way yeah. of, you know, females can't really write and they're not really funny and all that other bullcrap ideas that they came up with. I don't know where it came from, you know, um, but it's not allowed in our room at all. You want to jump into that fishbowl and see what we get? All right. Let me close this down. Grab the first one. Let's let you do it. What you got? Uh, there's no guarantee that any of these will apply to you specifically wow. so if it's what, 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 what'd you get it says what would be the title of my autobiography yeah hit us with that I have no idea wait have you ever have you had to give an awards speech yet no okay oh yeah like you had to get up there and say yeah, thank yeah, you yeah yeah like I won some awards that are up there I saw them on the wall yeah um that's a tough one well, I gotta ask you what would be yours, and maybe that'll help me think about what would be mine. What would be mine? Um, I'm such a prick. It would be like you're welcome or something like you're that. Right. <laughs> um, it would probably be something kind of nice because I'm like such a giver. Mm-hmm. Because I keep people keep asking me like, you should write a book. And I'm like, what would I write a book on? And I was like, if I was to write a book, I would write a book on surviving Hollywood over 40. Why won't you just call it surviving Hollywood over 40? There you go. Then. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fine title. It tells you exactly what it is. I pick it up at the airport. <clears throat> All right. What have we got next? Oh, if you knew that you couldn't fail, what new project would you embark on today? If it wouldn't fail? Like guaranteed success. What would you, what would you jump out this, the door right now and start? Something I don't have, something new. Nothing new? Wait, what? I'm asking, is this something I already have or something that something I have new. To, something, something new. Something new? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Something new, something new, something new. Um, There is a project that I want to work on um, based on the first female Buffalo Soldier. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that. We want to turn it into like a six, eight part series that... That would be something. <clears throat> also wrote this, what's up on the board up there, this other project. It's called Abbeville. It's kind of like um, Atlanta, but it takes place in Louisiana and the bayous. Okay. It's a real like gritty street down south show. Um, now, is that, that's a, a show show. That's a, that's a pilot. Okay. 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 Yeah. The other one is, um, is a miniseries. Um, then I have a bunch of movies that I would love to do. Ah. My God. Um, yeah, just off off the cusp, those would be two that I would really want to do right this moment. If it were things that I already have, I have about, because I have over 40-something scripts, so I could go down a long list, you know. Let's, let's keep going. What's next from the okay. bowl? <clears throat> what you got? Let's see. <laughs> it's one of mine. What'd you, what does it say? Baby Riders. What does that mean? So that um, the next time it gets pulled, I can explain it. It means a couple of things. Hit me. But in essence, it means usually it pertains to writers who haven't quite had success yet. Mm-hmm. So most staff writers are considered baby writers, even if they've had some success. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, so if you've sold your first movie, you're probably still a baby writer. They just, even though you probably have written for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. It, it really just pertains to somebody who doesn't really have a name in particular. Yeah. Um, it's not... It's not always meaning you, you're an experience, but it could mean that. A lot of people could think that. I actually did for Shadow and Act, which is a big um, um, online, was a big online um, site. I wrote a, a, they interviewed me and I did an article called The Baby Writer's Cheat Sheet. Mm-hmm. And I talk about different things that baby writers could do <clears throat> to get themselves another step ahead. Um, and lots, there's lots of lots of game in that one, um, but it's just if you Google me, you could you could find. Yeah, it. we'll we'll link to that yeah, when we when we upload definitely. the the episode. What do you want to say about baby writers? Um, I think that baby writers are. I mean, some people would still, despite all the shit I've done, like I said, even on my show, I'm I'm only a staff writer on my show. Um, despite how much things I've produced, I've been co co co-exec producer on 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 shows on smaller smaller level shows. Um, but but you would some of the EPs would probably consider me a baby writer, even though mm-hmm. I have more experience than some of them. You know. Um, so, what was your question? Um, forgive me. Forgive me. Oh, it. Uh, you it's you wrote the card, baby writers, and I'm right. just wondering I like what's, what's what on your mind text. about them. Oh. Um, I can't remember why did I write baby writers? Maybe it was because I was going to talk about my link to get to that to that link on what I wrote on the baby writers cheat sheet. <clears throat> but there's a lot of things that baby writers could be doing. Like I said, one working on your speed is one thing yep, you could yep, be doing. Yep. Um, I say reading more than watching. A lot of times I'll talk to writers and they're watching, yep. they're not reading as much. Um, you'd be amazed how fast, in my opinion, you grow if you read more. Like I had a young writer in here the other day and he was writing this pilot and he was comparing it to Atlanta. And I said, did you read the pilot? And he's like, no. So I made him read it. And then we talked Mm -hmm. the next day and I said, what did you learn? He goes, oh my, now I see how they opened it. This and this. I said, did you notice that in the actual pilot, that whole first little three page tag um, um, beginning teaser is not even in the show. He said, yeah. I said, you know why they did that? He said, why? He says, I think they didn't put it in because they didn't need to show you that. But for the reader, they needed to do it so that you understood him. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yep, yep, yep. So to me, there's a difference sometimes with what you read and what you see. If you'd have just watched the pilot, you would have never seen that moment. But if you read it, now you really get who he is by the time he gets yeah. to Atlanta. Yeah. You know what I mean? So little things like that, that, that I'm always encouraging writers in. <clears throat> you can't not read an amazing script that probably nominated for the Oscar or something and not not grow from it. Yeah, Watch yeah, how yeah. they write the prose, how they how they introduce the character, the first word they say out of their mouth that shows you who they are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Those are the tricks. That's that's the craft things that I'm looking for. That that you see in my scripts. I'll never forget when I rewrote that first script I told you about the first compliment I got from a big producer friend of mine, he says, wow, you write like you've been writing for years. Because I, all I did was read. Yeah. Read, yeah. I must have read four or 500 scripts that year alone, just engrossing myself in scripts. So by the time I went back and rewrote that script, I was like, 
my knowledge of how scripts could be was ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's why I say I think I'm pretty dangerous, you know, with the knowledge that I have. Yeah, and I'm an yeah. asset to any type of room because of that. And mind you, in most writer's rooms, you're not in there with your computer. You think people are, but they're not. They're actually just in there with a notebook and they're just talking and writing things down and yep, 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 <clears throat> whatever. So um, that was a huge adjustment to me. I came in there the first two days with my computer and I was the only one. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> this is some bullshit. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so I've adjusted, but I'm still not like, you know what I mean? Like, like I would want to be that I know if I had my computer, I'd be given more. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I find myself sitting back, watching, listening, and thinking clearly so that when I say something, it lands. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? And they would actually sometimes rather hear you sit back and land than to sit back and just throw out bullshit. Yep. You yep. know what yep. I mean? So that's, that's a lesson to <clears throat> a lot of writers. The other thing is every room is different. Um, some rooms, it's a hierarchy. Our room, they let us know there's no hierarchy in here. Yes, we are the EPs, and that's the co-EP, and that's the whatever. We're all level game. You got a question, mm-hmm. you got an answer. Boom, you don't have to wait for that person to finish. You know what I mean? Well, you wait from the finish, yeah, but you, yeah, have, yeah. you know what I mean? It's not like I got to let the whole hierarchy finish before I speak. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Can, I can speak of the showrunners, and you know what I mean? And that's been a cool thing but some rooms are like uh I, why are you speaking yeah <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. And we let the writers pas and the writers assistants speak if they have something you know what i mean that is a collaboration room yep, yep you know yep, what i mean yep, yep so let's do one more and then <clears throat> we'll let you we'll release you sure. <laughs> good luck oh boy what ideally would you like to happen when you die Oh, that's not hard at all. So I'm going to tell you a story. So when I was in San Francisco about 1994, um, to survive, I was a hairstylist. Mm-hmm. So I used to work at a salon in San Francisco. <clears throat> one of my clients was this guy who died of AIDS. He was one of my favorite clients, right? And I went to his passing service, whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. And his, his boyfriend... Had a, they had some friends who lived across the Golden Gate Bridge, like toward Napa Valley, out that way. And this house was like right on a fucking cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm probably going to be crying about this shit. And we, at a certain point, you know, we had this beautiful dinner. And then we all took candles. Oh, I knew it was going to happen. We took candles out and we walked out to the end of the cliff. Wow. Um, And we all had our candles and he reached, he had to earn, he reached inside and he passed the ashes down to each and every one of us. And like all at once, we threw it into the air and it went down. It was just the most beautiful. I'll never forget it. So that's the way I want to go. That's it. Everybody was there. Mm-hmm. One of their friends was singing this beautiful gospel song. I was like, I don't want no fucking funeral. I want to go like that. 
You know what I mean? It was just beautiful. I'll never forget it. You know? This, yeah. So, um, so where, where can people find you on Twitter and Instagram? <laughs> I am Hilliard Guest. You guys can find me <laughs> on Twitter at Hilliard Guest. You guys can follow my show if you want. Screenwriters are, are no, on no, Twitter. No, no, okay, okay. So hold on on that. Whatever you do, just turn this one off and go listen to the Screenwriters <laughs> Rant Room. It's really good. It's a really, really good program. There's no ifs, maybes on this one. Sorry I had to listen to all my skinhead stuff, but it gave you a little no. game on who I am. Though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, anything else to people your website where should people be going what's the um, I know we have a Patreon which we need yep. to be promoting you guys can follow me on Facebook um, I'm on Instagram at Hilliard Guess um, my company is Hill Dog Productions you know All shit right. like that you could Google me I love saying that shit Google yeah. me bitch Google me <laughs> thank you Thanks, we're, we're done appreciate it boss <laughs>